it's only a kick, a jump, a block, it's only a serve, it's only a tackle, a run, it's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Today's podcast is presented by Podgo. Podgo is the easiest way for you to monetize your podcast, providing podcasters with a flat rate for ad space so you always know how much you get when you include an ad from Podgo. Apply today to become a member and immediately be connected with advertisers that fit your audience. That's podgo.co at P-O-D-G-O dot C-O. And be sure to add our podcast, Ye Old Crime, with an E in old, in the How Did You Hear About Podgo section of the application. The Oracle Network. Hello and welcome to Yield Crime, where we discuss the funny, strange, and obscure crimes of yesteryear. I'm your host, Lindsay Valenti, and with me is my sister and co-host, Maddie Stengel. Hello. Hi. How's it going? It's going. We're recording this a day earlier than normal, so it feels really weird. I know, because I was up until like 11 o'clock last night working on notes. Yeah. So you're like, let's do this. Friday night, whoop, whoop. Party hard. Uh, we swam in the outdoor pool. We were the only two out there. <laughs> nice. Yeah, the indoor pool is not balanced and it was devastating because they have a hot tub in there and we're like, wait, <laughs> no. So, this is another case that was requested. So, today we are going to be discussing the mignonette in the case of the Crown versus Dudley and Stevens. Ooh, sounds courtroomy. Yes, this is going to be our first case where we actually dive into the law regarding a crime. Ooh. Making history on our history podcast. Yield court crime. <laughs> Honorable Judge Valenti presiding. Your Honor, it was a woman. Burner at the stake. <laughs> <laughs> so information was pulled from the following sources. A 2015 Cult of Weird article by Charlie Hintz. A 2004 Brandeis College Philosophy of Law handout site, a 1986 article from the John Marshall Law Review by Ann Lucen, the Case Briefs website, a 1985 article from the Michigan Law Review, court record of the Queen versus Dudley and Stevens from December 9th, 1884, mm. an H20 Harvard Law article by Elizabeth Gam, Harvard University's Justice with Michael Sandel video and discussion, which was fascinating, and two sources from Wikipedia. All right, rounding it out with Wikipedia. Let's go. And links to all these articles will be included in the show notes. Yep, yep. Before we dive too much into today's story, which is going to be Cray, yeah. I want to set up some context surrounding what we'll be discussing. Okay. In Victorian England, and in centuries predating that, seafaring and sailing culture was, although part of the legalities of the Commonwealth, they also held their own standards of behavior. Interesting. That's kind of unexpected. So they had their own kind of like sea code, essentially. Yeah. Okay. 
sailors were a tight-knit group. You kind of had to be when you were facing the common dangers that being on the sea for long stretches uh, posed. Very long stretches of time. And many members of the community were related by either intermarriage and had their own rules when it came to matters that couldn't readily be dealt with back in England. Okay. So we're going to discuss these more in depth later in our story, but I just kind of wanted to set the stage and like give that context before we jump into it. Sounds good. The Mignonette was a 52-foot or 15-meter English yacht purchased by John Henry Want, a wealthy Australian barrister, while he was in Essex. Okay, so vacationing and, and bought a very fancy boat. Yes. Okay, all right. You know, for leisure. As you do when you're a baron, I get it. Yep. Barrister. He didn't want to take it back to Sydney as cargo on the deck of a larger vessel. So he hired a small crew to sail it to the southern continent for him. That doesn't sound smart. Yeah. Like at all. Like a yacht. I'm just imagining the yacht going through like those torrential seas. Mm Mm-hmm. Probably seems dumb. Is this foreshadowing? This is foreshadowing. Okay, cool. (laughs) It should be noted that the Mignonette was an inshore boat designed for fishing and the occasional race and was not designed for long voyages. Now I just think of, you know, that Tokyo drop song, like Fast and Furious. <laughs> just two <laughs> yachts in the 1800s, just like battling it out next to a beach. With a bunch of ladies in their bustle skirts being like, woo! Yep. Makes waving it. their fans. So dangerous. The barrister hired Thomas Dudley as the captain of the small sea vessel, and Dudley hired Edwin Stevens as his first mate, Edmund Brooks, who was an able and experienced seaman, and a 17-year-old young man named Richard Parker, who wasn't as experienced as it was his first voyage, but he served as the cabin boy. And none of these experienced sailors said, hey, dude, this is a terrible idea, and we know because we're experienced sailors. They just shut up and took the money? Yep. Cool. Cool, 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 cool. Got it. Thomas Dudley was 31, Edwin Stevens was 37, and Edmund Brooks was 38. Past tense is very ominous. Yes. Well, I mean, they're all dead now. (laughs) Right. They're still 31 today. (laughs) The seas have immortalized them. Forever 31. Frozen in time. It's another store for old people. (laughs) (laughs) Frozen in time. It's just... Yachts and snow globes. That's all it is. The small crew departed from Essex in late May, and due to the nature of the vessel, the route that was chosen was outside the normal shipping channels to ensure it traveled on the typically calmer waters along the edge of the Atlantic. Well, at least they did that. Yeah. At the start of their journey, it was smooth sailing and they were making good time. Mm -hmm. Not long, however, the weather took a turn and Captain Dudley made the decision to turn further off the route in an effort to escape the high winds and stormy seas. Seems like a bad idea, Dudley. As you can imagine, this only worked for so long. Mm-hmm. In the late afternoon of July 5th, 1884, after arriving at the northwestern tip of the Cape of Good Hope... Oh, shoot. <laughs> They're down there? Yep. Uh-oh. Well, because they had, they're going to Australia. I know. I know. I figured they had to go down that route, but I was hoping for the best. Yeah. Hope, hope dies in yield crime. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. There's never hope in yield yeah. crime. Yeah, it's pretty sad. Okay. Okay, I'm ready. Abandon all hope, you enter here. <laughs> 
Captain Dudley had just given the order to heave to, or slow down, the ship so that the crew could rest for the night. After the move was successfully completed, Parker headed below deck to prepare tea when tragedy struck. Uh-oh. A heavy wave slammed into the stern of the small vessel, which washed away the lee bulwark. The captain realized the ship was doomed and immediately ordered that the lifeboat be lowered. Well, he tried. Within a matter of five minutes, the mignonette had sunk. The crew quickly found themselves stranded on a 13-foot or 4-meter lifeboat in the middle of the South Atlantic with minimal navigation equipment and only a few tins of turnips for food to share amongst themselves after their emergency supply of water was swept away by the waves. Awesome. I bet they blame the cabin boy for that. (laughs) Damn it, Parker. (laughs) Are you (laughs) Spider-Man? Get us out of here. Right. Spiderwebs can't help you now, Parker. I have nothing to attach them to. (laughs) Just water and more water. The crew of four, who were all able to escape the shipwreck and make it aboard the dinghy, found themselves 700 miles, or 1,100 kilometers, from the nearest shore, which would have been St. Helena or Tristan de Cunha, which are both volcanic islands off the southern coast of southwest Africa. Sounds safe. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. Their only hope of survival was to make it back onto the main trade route so they could be rescued by another ship. Yeah. Yeah. As if that wasn't bad enough, that first night they had to also deal with a shark attack that required them to fight it off with their oars. Yeah, I was kind of wondering when that was going to happen. Typically, according to maritime tradition, once a ship has sunk, the crew no longer owes their allegiance to the captain, which that's kind of scary. Yeah. But I mean, it makes sense. Like, I'm not going to choose my life over your ship, dude. Yeah. Well, especially if it was the captain's fault that something happened. Right. Which sounds like it is to me. However, in this case, Captain Dudley retained control over the crew and had them assist in rigging up a makeshift wind anchor to keep them from being overtaken by the high waves and to help them drift along the currents. Okay. The crew waited two days before opening the first tin of turnips, which the men shared and rationed for the following two days. Four days into their wandering, they stumbled upon a sleeping sea turtle, which they quickly hauled on board. Uh Oh, they're going to eat him. Trigger warning for animal lovers. No! (laughs) No! No! Oh, God! You should probably skip ahead like 10 to 30 seconds. No, sea turtle, no, he's just asleep. (laughs) The group were able to feed off this catch for 10 to 12 days after drinking what they could of its blood while it was fresh. They even ate the bones and chewed on its leathery skin. (sighs) All of this was able to last them until around the 16th of July. I get it. I really do. I totally understand. That's devastating. I know. I would have totally skipped ahead if I could. (laughs) (laughs) How do I skip ahead? How do I skip ahead? No. (laughs) I'm not able to. The four were able to capture some rainwater, but not nearly enough to slack their thirst. Yeah, I bet. By July 13th, the group had taken to drinking their own urine in an effort to stay hydrated as the salt water of the sea would slowly kill them. Yep. Luckily, they knew that by then. Yeah. Well, I mean, they've been sailing for how long? Like, they knew they were not supposed to drink the water. Yeah. 
By the 19th day, after their rations of canned turnips had been depleted and the remains of the the turtle had long ago been consumed, not to mention that there was no land or sign of rescue in sight, the men began to openly talk about the possibility of cannibalism in order to survive. I mean, if put in that situation, that would make sense. I don't know if I could. I think I'd be the tribute. (laughs) I'd be like, I'm just going to die, y'all. This is cool. Have fun. You go all Katniss Everdeen on it. And you're like, I volunteer as tribute. Right. I don't want to eat somebody else's innards. No, thank you. Captain Dudley proposed that lots be drawn to choose which one of them should be killed in order for the rest to survive. Ooh. This custom was a long-held maritime tradition that allowed for the homicide and cannibalism of another as a result of a lottery. Brooks flat out refused to consider the idea. And when First Mate Stevens expressed his hesitancy as well, the matter was quickly dropped. Well, that's good. So far, these dudes are all, like, super reasonable. Richard Parker, who was 17 years old, had been drinking the salty seawater on July 20th, which made him violently ill. He was fearing the worst as he drifted in and out of consciousness. I have a feeling he's about to be eaten. At that time, drinking seawater in an order to stave off thirst was basically an attempt at suicide and an almost guaranteed death sentence. Yeah, that makes sense. Captain Dudley and Stevens had a conversation about sacrificing Parker for the cause. He was already sick and likely to die any day now. He also didn't have a wife or children, so it made sense to the pair that he be the one to make the ultimate sacrifice. To give you further context, Brooks did not have any dependents of his own, but both Captain Dudley and Stevens had wives and children back in England. Okay. That would have been basically destitute if either of them perished. Okay. I mean, that makes sense. There weren't a lot of women in the workforce generally at that time that couldn't make enough. Yeah. Damn. On July 23rd, Parker had fallen into a coma, and Captain Dudley once again brought up the idea of killing Parker so the rest of them could survive. Both Stevens and Brooks continued to be hesitant, so Dudley said that if the sun rose tomorrow and no form of rescue, whether that be land or another ship, was in sight, that he would commit the deed. Okay. When the sun rose on July 24th and there was still no sign of rescue, the three men knew what was coming. Captain Dudley and Stevens made the decision to sacrifice Parker instead of letting him die naturally so that his blood wouldn't be contaminated and thus be better for drinking. Interesting. So if you die naturally, your blood is contaminated? Well, it's going to coagulate. You can't really drink coagulated blood. Interesting. I've never, like, that was never something I thought about, but I also don't, you know, drink blood. I actually think about killing people and drinking their blood. I about drinking blood, so that would... I'll do it. Captain Dudley walked to where Parker was laying at the bottom of the boat, his face hidden in his arms. It's said that the captain said to him, quote, Richard, your hour has come, to which the delirious and half-conscious Parker replied, quote, What, me, sir? End quote. The captain affirmed, quote, Yes, my boy, end quote, said a prayer, and then pushed his penknife into Parker's jugular and quickly slit his throat. Boy. I mean, at least he he went for probably the quickest death. Is that a quick death? Slitting yeah. Slitting your throat? Because you could, I mean, you can also choke on your own blood that way, and that's kind of a slower death. Yeah. Ooh. Captain Dudley later wrote of the experience, quote, 
I can assure you I shall never forget the sight of my two unfortunate companions over that ghastly meal. We all was like mad wolves who should get the most, and for men, fathers of children, to commit such a deed, we could not have our right reason, end quote. Yeah, that would mess you up for life. Yep. For the next four days, the remaining three crewmen, including Brooks, who hadn't taken part in the killing and had objected to it entirely, Trigger warning. Skip ahead 15 if you need to. I can't skip. (laughs) (laughs) Drank Peter's blood before it could congeal, since liquid was needed more than food in order to continue to survive, before consuming the most blood-rich organs first, such as the heart, liver, etc. The remaining crew was finally rescued four days later on July 29th, 1884. So 24 many? days after being shipwrecked. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. 24 days. So that's, they survived 24 days on a dinghy mm-hmm. with two cans of radishes. No water. No water. I mean, it was only 13 feet. Wow. A German boat named the Montezuma spotted the dinghy as they were making their way back to Germany from South America. Brooks was the only one of the men who was able to pull himself aboard the Montezuma. Dudley and Stevens had to be carried. Wasn't Brooks the one that, like, did murder and stuff, too? Yep. His righteousness lifted him up. Yeah. I didn't kill no one. He's like, I got this. (sighs) Upon seeing Parker's remains, it became readily apparent to all the crew of the Montezuma what had happened. But they continued to treat Dudley and his crew with kindness and care as they sailed onward to return them home. Well, yeah, I bet they understood. Yep. The Montezuma sailed into Falmouth, Cornwall on September 6, 1884, just over three months after the crew had originally departed. The three men were taken to the customs house, where they were questioned regarding the events of their disastrous journey. Yep, that makes sense. Captain Dudley told the tale of what transpired almost as if he was sharing the works of a great play, and he even insisted on keeping the very penknife that he'd used to kill Parker. Okay, I don't really like that so much. Yeah. The men all believed that their desperate acts of survival, which were commonly known among sailors and naval officers alike as the custom of the sea, would be forgiven. As I said, this was a common and known thing for seafaring men whenever necessity called for it. Yeah. An earlier example involves the crew of the Brig Caledonia, who survived until their eventual rescue by killing and eating two of their men. Mm-hmm. At the time, no one would have considered taking any sort of legal action against the crew, as everyone understood that it was done in an effort to save as many people as possible. Duty Police Sergeant James Laverty of the Falmouth Harbor Police questioned Captain Dudley further regarding the murder of Parker and took custody of the penknife after promising to return it. What they didn't realize was that England had changed much during the time they'd been at sea and instead of being allowed to go home to be with their families and loved ones, the group of three men quickly found themselves arrested and charged with the murder of Richard Parker. Mm. So it changed within the three months? Yeah, it's something where, and I'll kind of get into it, but okay. they, the government had been looking kind of for a way... To regulate more? To regulate these sorts of situations more. I mean, I get it. As you modernize, you hope that... This sort of stuff doesn't happen anymore, but 1880s wasn't very modern. (laughs) No. No. Okay. 
They were detained at the station for the next two days until they could appear before the magistrates on Monday, September 8th. At the time, the men simply believed that they were being interviewed by a local magistrate per the Merchant Shipping Acts in order to provide information in order to be exonerated of any criminal guilt they held for what they had done while at sea. Mm -hmm. Captain Dudley, upon discovering that he and the rest of his crew were all to be charged for murder, immediately labeled himself as the ringleader and orchestrator of the murder and told authorities that Brooks had no part in any of it and was completely innocent of any wrongdoing. Well, that's good, but that's got to be terrifying. Yeah. According to the rule of law, a person may never sacrifice another person's life to save his own. Professor Simpson noted in his book entitled Cannibalism and the Common Law, the story of the tragic last voyage of the Minionette and the strange legal proceedings to which it gave rise, Mm -hmm. that the government had long tried and failed to impose any sort of land-based morality regarding the barbaric maritime custom of homicide and cannibalism in situations of necessity. So that's kind of where this comes into play. Yeah. I mean, I get, I I, I understand their concern, but, and it is barbaric, but you're already kind of like, (laughs) you're belittling an impossible situation. Yeah. Like, you know, when it comes to bare bones survival, people will do what they need to do. And and from what it sounds like, the captain really did try as long as he could. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that's messed up. I get it. I get it. But, like, I've never been in the sea. I would be the first to go as a diabetic. So I'd be like, bye, guys. Enjoy my sweet blood. <laughs> yep. On Wednesday, September 10th, 1884, Home Secretary Sir William Harcourt, who reported directly to Her Majesty Queen Victoria, mm-hmm. met with Attorney General Sir Henry James and the Solicitor General Sir Ferrer Herschel to discuss what to do. Harcourt decided to move forward with the case, as the law regarding this matter had not been clarified up until this point. Okay. The men were tried separately. In the case of the Crown versus Brooks, Brooks himself was acquitted of the charges. Instead, Brooks became the prosecution's chief witness in the trial against Dudley and Stevens. It may surprise you to learn that prior to and during the trial, the public supported Dudley and Stevens and viewed their plight with the utmost sympathy. The people of Falmouth even threatened to murder Mayor Henry Lidicote for having arrested the men in the first place. Oh, shit. Mob justice. Yeah. Many members of the seafaring community and the rest of the country were appalled by the very idea that the government would put two men who had already gone through such a harrowing ordeal through a trial as well. Yeah. One of the most remarkable things in this whole case, which I will get to, (laughs) is the fact that Daniel Parker, who was Richard Parker's oldest brother, shook hands with Dudley in court and forgave him for what was done. Keep in mind that Parker came from a seafaring family who would have known the customs of the sea and also who would have known that Dudley would have done all he could to ensure that Parker did not suffer in his final moments. Yeah, and he would have suffered who knows how much longer, too, after drinking the seawater and becoming going mm-hmm. in and out of consciousness, too. Mm-hmm. It would have been a bad death. The trial began in Exeter at the Devon and Cornwall Winter Assizes in November, on November 7th, 1884. 
Judge Baron Huddleston presided over the case and was, in fact, the son of a sea merchant. He disliked sailors in general. Oh, no. And sought to, quote, outlaw the barbarous practices of seamen, end quote, as he called it, such as the custom of the sea that allowed for the drawing of lots to commit acts of murder and cannibalism. Cool. So he's already like, this is going to be a historical case and I'm going to fuck y'all up. Yep. And looking back, it's readily apparent that he used this relatively routine sea disaster as an opportunity to make a law yep. and decide once and for all what really could be considered a case of necessity. Mm-hmm. What was unusual about the case against Dudley and Stevens was the fact that the jury were not permitted to render a verdict since there were fears that they would choose to acquit. Baron Huddleston wanted to make a name for himself, and he wasn't going to let such a high-profile case end with the defendants getting let off with a slap on the wrist for murdering a young man and committing acts of cannibalism. Awesome. So, so far, the prosecution and the judge see this as an opportunity to become more well-known and make it a landmark case and Go down the mystery mm-hmm. books. Yep. Cool, 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 cool. Fair trial. Awesome. Let's do this. Another unusual aspect was the fact that the two men were allowed to be released under their own cognizance back in September on the 18th during Brooks' trial, which is something that is unheard of in a murder case. Okay. The three returned to their homes and loved ones until a final verdict was rendered. So they didn't even have to appear in court during this. I would have wanted to. (laughs) Yeah, no shit. Be like, I'm sorry, you guys are talking shit about me. Can I please be here? Okay, this is going to be a very long quote. (sighs) But there was no other way to do it. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. but this is a special verdict that was read during the original trial. So the trial that Huddleston presided over. Okay. Quote, on July 5th, 1884, the prisoners, Thomas Dudley and Edward Stevens, with one Brooks all able-bodied English seamen, and the deceased, also an English boy between 17 and 18 years of age, the crew of an English yacht, a registered English vessel, were cast away in a storm on the high seas 1,600 miles from the Cape of Good Hope and were compelled to put into an open boat belonging to the said yacht, that in this boat they had no supply of water and no supply of food except two one-pound tins of turnips, and for three days they had nothing else to subsist upon. That on the fourth day they caught a small turtle, upon which they subsisted for a few days, and this was the only food they had up to the twentieth day when the act now in question was committed. That too, on the twelfth day, the remains of the turtle were entirely consumed, and for the next eight days they had nothing to eat. That they had no fresh water except such rain as they from time to time caught in their oilskin capes that the boat was drifting on the ocean and was probably more than a thousand miles away from land, that on the 18th day, when they had been seven days without food and five without water, the prisoners spoke to Brooks as to what should be done if no succor came and suggested that someone should be sacrificed to save the rest. But Brooks dissented and the boy, to whom they were understood to refer, was not consulted. That on the 24th of July, the day before the act now in question, the prisoner Dudley proposed to Stevens and Brooks that lots should be cast who should be put to death to save the rest. But Brooks refused to consent, and it was not put to the boy, and in point of fact there was no drawing of lots. 
that on that day, the prisoners spoke of their having families and suggested it would be better to kill the boy that their lives should be saved. And Dudley proposed that if there was no vessel in sight by the morrow morning, the boy should be killed. Mm -hmm. That next day, the 25th of July, no vessel appearing, Dudley told Brooks that he had better go and have a sleep and made signs to Stevens and Brooks that the boy had better be killed. The prisoner Stevens agreed to the act, but Brooks dissented from it, that the boy was then lying at the bottom of the boat quite helpless and extremely weakened by famine and by drinking seawater and unable to make any resistance, nor did he ever assent to his being killed. The prisoner Dudley offered a prayer asking forgiveness for them all if either of them should be tempted to commit a rash act and that their souls might be saved. That Dudley, with the assent of Stevens, went to the boy and telling him that his time was come, put a knife into his throat and killed him then and there. That the three men fed upon the body and blood of the boy for four days. That on the fourth day after the act had been committed, the boat was picked up by a passing vessel and the prisoners were rescued, still alive, but in the lowest state of prostration. That they were carried to the port of Falmouth and committed for trial at Exeter that if the men had not fed upon the body of the boy, they would probably not have survived to be so picked up and rescued, but would within the four days have died of famine. That the boy, being in a much weaker condition, was likely to have died before them. That at the time of the act in question, there was no sail in sight, nor any reasonable prospect of relief. That under these circumstances, there appeared to the prisoners every probability that unless they then fed or very soon fed upon the boy or one of themselves, they would Mm -hmm. die of starvation. That there was no appreciable chance of saving life except by killing someone for the others to eat. That assuming any necessity to kill anybody, there was no greater necessity for killing the boy than any of the other three men, end quote. Since Huddleston was only an assize judge and could not make any sort of rulings that could be put into law. He had the case brought before a grand jury on November 25, 1884, at the Royal Courts of Justice. What is striking about this, besides the fact that the jury couldn't render any sort of verdict during the original trial, is the fact that Huddleston himself wrote the verdict and essentially had the jury adopt it as if they had written it themselves. That's fucked up. This allowed him to bring it before the higher court as it was labeled a special verdict that required further investigation regarding the rules and legality of what constitutes necessity. Not okay. Oh, man. Okay. The sitting judge for the case of Her Majesty the Queen versus Tom Dudley and Edwin Stevens was Lord Coleridge. John Duke Coleridge, the first Baron Coleridge, served as the Lord Chief Justice of England from November 29, 1880 to June 14, 1894. Huddleston argued against the defense of necessity by comparing it to the act of self-defense. Here's a quote. Quote, it is impossible to say that the act of Dudley and Stevens was an act of self-defense. Parker, at the bottom of the boat, was not endangering their lives by any act of his. The boat would hold them all, and the motive for killing him was not for the purpose of lightening the boat, but for the purpose of eating him, which they could do when dead, but not while living. What really imperiled their lives was not the presence of Parker, but the absence of food or drink, end quote. Yeah. The jury was told to just determine the facts of what happened, and instead of Judge Coleridge determining a ruling for their guilt or innocence, a tribunal of five other judges passed judgment, 
declaring both men guilty. Judge Mm -hmm. Coleridge, in his closing statements, questioned whether the act of necessity that would have warranted the custom of the sea was indeed a necessity at all. He stated, quote, The defendants might possibly have been picked up the next day by a passing ship. They might possibly have have been picked up at all. In either case, it is obvious that the killing of Parker would have been an unnecessary and profitless act, even if necessity existed, that could not justify the killing of another human being. To preserve one's life is, generally speaking, a duty. It may be the plainest and the highest duty to sacrifice it. War is full of instances in which it is a man's duty not to live, but to die. The duty, in case of shipwreck, of a captain to his crew, of the crew to the passengers, of soldiers to women and children. These duties impose on men the moral necessity not of preservation, but of their sacrifice of their lives for others. It is not correct, therefore, to say there is any absolute or unqualified necessity to preserve one's life, end quote. <sighs> That's a lot to unpack. Mm-hmm. And it's it's also kind of a circle, a circular argument. Mm-hmm. Because you could use that same argument to make them innocent. Mm-hmm. Sacrifice of one for the many. Yep. Especially somebody who was already actively dying. Yep. His final statement on the matter centered around the rule that permitted killing someone in situations of necessity. Quote, who is to judge of this sort of necessity? By what measure is the comparative value of lives to be measured? Is it to be strength or intellect or what? End quote. Captain Dudley and Stevens were convicted of murder on December 9th, 1884 and sentenced to be hanged. Oh. Here is where a tricky thing regarding capital punishment in Victorian England comes into play. Okay. At the time, any murder carried a mandatory death sentence, primarily because unlike today, there were no degrees of murder, mm-hmm. whereas today we have manslaughter as another charge. Okay. After 1882, Sir William Harcourt, who was the Home Secretary for Her Majesty Queen Victoria, as mm-hmm. I said before, worked to develop a two-step process when deciding if a murder conviction warranted death or imprisonment. If a verdict is reached for, say, manslaughter, the jury would recommend mercy, which the Home Secretary could present to the Queen so they could receive a royal pardon. This doesn't mean that every case that requested mercy was granted. They still had to be vetted by Sir William and ultimately by Her Majesty as well. Okay. In the case of Dudley and Stevens, in December 1884, the jury had recommended mercy, which essentially guaranteed that the pair would not be hanged. Yep. However, it was unclear if they should still serve time in jail for their crimes versus getting a royal pardon and being let go altogether. Shouldn't the Queen decide that? Sir William proposed that their sentences be altered, to which the Queen agreed and the pair served six months' time before being released on May 20th, 1885. Well, that's a better outcome. Yep. By the time that Dudley and Stevens were released, Edmund Brooks had already returned to life on the high seas. However, the idea of returning to a life aboard a ship no longer had the same appeal for Dudley and Stevens as it once did. No shit. Yeah. Edwin Stevens settled near Southampton and worked a number of odd jobs to support himself. Despite his best efforts to forget, he couldn't let go of his memories of what took place on that dinghy, Mm -hmm. and over time, he slowly went mad. 
Yeah, that makes sense. Thomas Dudley decided to get away from all of it and emigrated to Sydney, Australia, ironically, where he and his yeah. crew were originally supposed to deliver the mignonette. Yeah, kind of weird, but okay. He and his family moved in 1885 after they had been ruined emotionally and financially by the case. Yeah, go somewhere where people hopefully don't know you by name. Dudley owned and operated a small shop in Sydney and was able to hide his dark history quite well. No one knew or asked about his past. It is noted that he was also adversely affected by memories of his time and actions on the dinghy. And it's said that he tried to rid himself of them through copious amounts of opium. Yeah, drugs generally are the way to go. Thomas Dudley died in Australia in 1900 in a strange twist as the first victim of the bubonic plague when it hit the continent. Oh, he was patient zero? He was patient zero. Damn. In November 2015, the sextant from the failed expedition was put up for auction at the London-based Charles Miller Limited and contained the following inscription. Quote, We, Thomas Dudley, Edwin Stevens, Edmund Brooks, and Richard Parker, the crew of the yacht Mignonette, which foundered on Saturday the 5th of July, have been in our little dinghy for 15 days. We have neither food or water and are greatly reduced. We suppose our latitude to be 25 degrees south, our longitude 28 degrees west. May the Lord have mercy upon us. Please forward this to Southampton, end quote. Hmm. The sextant was the last surviving relic of the doomed trip of the mignonette, which had been purchased from an antique shop in 1973 in Australia, where Dudley settled. Crazy. Richard Parker's family had a tombstone made for him that read, quote, Though he slay me, yet I will trust him. Job chapter 13, verse 15. Lord, lay not this sin to their charge, end quote. This case was requested by listener Janet Austin who is a law professor at the University of New Brunswick, Canada, since neither of us practice law. But from what I read in my research, this is a common case that is used when discussing the necessity defense, Mm. when discussing the nature of mens rea, and what actually constitutes a crime in the eyes of the law. Interesting. So, I mean, the judge and the the baron, Mm -hmm. they got what they wanted. Mm Mm-hmm historical landmark case they were just really shitty about it yep as i touched on at the top of the episode members of the seafaring community had set up their own rules and regulations for how to handle certain situations that would arise when out at sea one such well-constructed rule was that lots would be drawn in instances where there was a threat of death from drowning starvation or thirst while the casting of lots was a time-honored practice it did pose legal problems in the long run For example, in cases when both passengers and crew were at risk, the lottery was often limited to just the passengers, with the understanding being that the crew were necessary to ensure that the vessel would continue to float. Ooh, that gets muddy. Mm Mm-hmm. In the case of Dudley and Stevens, it was argued by some that because they chose Parker as the one to die in a sort of social Darwinism, this approach was immoral on the grounds that lots hadn't been drawn as was the custom. They had yeah. blatantly chosen their victim. Yeah. Well, and they they touched on it before. They never once asked him. Mm-hmm. But he was also in and out of consciousness, so it would be difficult to ask him. Be like, hey, you want to die? 
<laughs> for the good of all of us. Can we drink your blood, dude? Yep. However, we need to remember that Captain Dudley did attempt to have them draw lots. Yep. Which would have been considered the civilized way to do it. In the end, the captain believed that their choosing to kill Parker made the most rational sense, as he was already very sick and likely to die anyway before they could be rescued. Yeah. I mean, it's an impossible situation. Like, there will always be an argument against every choice you make. Mm Mm-hmm. And for every choice you make. This case in particular brings to light and encourages a broader discussion regarding the outcome of the trial due to the fact that it was generally misunderstood by the layman of the day who believed the conviction resulted not because Parker was killed, but because he was not selected by drawing lots. Not to mention the fact that it was not likely to reach the population of seamen who it might have been intended for to deter such activities from happening in the future and that it was unlikely to deter anyone faced with the alternatives of certain death from starvation or the possibility of a trial and a subsequent brief term in jail. Yeah. Several of the issues that arose during the Dudley and Stevens case can still be found in court cases today. As noted in the John Marshall Law Review, these include the proper role of necessity as a defense, Mm -hmm. the ways a legal system uses statutes, prosecutorial discretion, Mm -hmm. juries, and executive clemency to arrange desired results in individual cases while upholding the rule of law. Yeah, that was really messed up. And the conflicts arising between subcultures with certain sets of mores and the greater society, which controls a legal system with a different set of rules. Yep. So what do you think? What are your takeaways from this case? Okay. I can see why they were concerned mm-hmm. because, I mean, the men were in an, in an impossible situation. 24 days is a really long time to not have any real concept of time rather than mm-hmm. set up sunset, to not have water. And with Richard continuing to voluntarily drink seawater, mm-hmm. you could also assume that he was not capable of making a choice or consenting, which makes it makes Dudley kind of more at fault in a way, mm-hmm. like not being able to consent. But I don't, I don't know, because because how many days did they get saved after they ate Dudley or after they ate Parker? They were saved four days later. Who knows if he would have died naturally by then too? Like he might have lived, but who knows if any of them would have lived? They might have all had organ failure after not having any sustenance. So, Because at the time that they killed him, it had been eight days since they'd eaten anything and five days since they'd had anything to drink. And you will die generally a week without water. Correct. So they would have, they would have all died. Yes. Theoretically. They likely would have all been dead by yes. the time the Montezuma found their boat. Yep. So... Well, I understand people's concern and wanting to try Dudley. I think he continued to make impossible decisions. Mm -hmm. And he really did try to do what was best for everyone. The thing that I can see why people would be uncomfortable with the situation is that even though Parker was never quite right when they were making these lottery decisions, Mm -hmm. they never once tried 
to consult him. And I think that's the biggest issue Mm -hmm. is like, I don't know when I, (laughs) in, in kind of a weird comparison, when my blood sugar is really low, I, if, if anyone isn't super familiar with type one diabetes, when your blood sugar is too low or too high, your cognitive function kind of changes Mm-hmm. And you are in a state similar to when you, you you're super super drunk, so you're not super capable of <laughs> any real cognizant thought, especially if it drops below sixty into like the fifties. Because um, after I, I I think generally if your blood sugars fifty or lower, you you have rapid brain cell death generally mm-hmm. until you fix it. So I would assume. If you were to ask me if I wanted to participate in a lottery with my low blood sugar, I wouldn't have, you wouldn't have been able to really use that as consent as well. So somebody Mm -hmm. who is in and out of consciousness, which is theoretically low blood sugar, like extreme low blood sugar, they wouldn't have been able to consent. So I get why people would want it. And it's ironic that consent is really important in this case and not with women's bodies, but I digress. Mm Mm-hmm. It's it's something that I I wouldn't be able to have an opinion on unless I was able to experience it myself. And I think that's the ultimate takeaway with this is I can I can put all my morals on these people as much as possible, but I have yet to any experience anything even remotely similar to what that situation is. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. As long as they don't murder a bunch of people when they get back on land, <laughs> I think it's yeah. okay. I don't know. Yeah. What are your thoughts? I think my thoughts are kind of similar to yours. It would be different if he had had a say, because I feel like they wouldn't have necessarily had any real grounds to try them in a court of law had they done the lots thing, like yeah. was actually part of the custom. Mm-hmm. Because then it's like, you know, there's nothing for you to challenge. It was fair for all parties involved. Yep. Whether you consider killing somebody and cannibalizing them to be fair at all. I mean, that's right. not... <laughs> right. That's not the issue here. No. The issue is consent. The issue is consent. That's what it all boils down to and necessity. Yeah. And I do feel like there was necessity in this instance, regardless of who was sacrificed, they would not have survived. Mm-hmm. Like they could have chosen to have none of them be murdered or right. sacrificed or whatever you want to label it as. But in the end, all of them would have perished. Yep. So and it goes back to that argument of, do you sacrifice a few to save the, the many? You know, yeah. like, and that was part of what was being discussed in that legal talk that I watched mm-hmm. from Harvard Law School is, mm-hmm. you know, what is the right answer? There isn't a right answer. There is no it's right all answer. up to interpretation. Yep. And well, because it's not if, if they were to all perish, it's not just the ruin of them; it's the ruin of the two other families as well. Yep, and the children. So, mm-hmm. it's a much bigger sacrifice. And as, as somebody who doesn't have a family and isn't technically married, it's one of those things where you're like, "Oh, God, why is it always me that goes first? But I mean, if you really think about it, who who am I to to say that I'm more important than somebody who has, you know, four or five people relying on them. Mm-hmm. I think it all boils down to what you believe. And so there, there will never be a right answer. Yeah. 
But that's also an argument right there as well. <laughs> Who's to say that your life isn't more important than somebody else's? <laughs> Just because you don't have a husband and children doesn't mean that you can't go on to like develop the cure for cancer or something. Or the bubonic plague that killed that. <laughs> you know, like, so yeah, there is no right answer regardless yeah. of what you choose it to be. Yeah. And I think ultimately what was at the core of this case was the act of consent, which we yeah. just, which we addressed the act of necessity. Did they have to kill somebody? Right. Could they have, gone without killing somebody. Who knows? They might have found another sea turtle the next right. day. You know, like there's and yeah, I think that's kind of what it boils down to is consent and necessity. And if you don't have consent and if it wasn't necessary, there'd be nothing to discuss. Yeah. Then they would have been hanged. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So thank you for requesting this this episode, Janet. That was it was an interesting deep dive to kind of look at cannibalism, which is everybody's favorite subject. Right, everyone's favorite subject in a different light. Yeah, in a different light, in a legal aspect. Because when I was researching, they did also bring up cases of like the Donner Party mm -hmm. and Alfred Packer. Yeah. Which, somebody who just wanted to murder and wanted to taste flesh versus somebody who all of them didn't want to eat him. Yeah, because it went back to the discussion of survival cannibalism. Yep. Which is when you're you're eating somebody because you need to to survive. Mm -hmm. And the act of committing cannibalism for cannibalism's sake, where you are actively killing somebody to cannibalize them instead of eating somebody who has already perished in order for you to continue to survive. Yeah. So yeah, just kind of an interesting way to look at the legalities of cannibalism and sort of the the morality mm -hmm. of whether it's right or wrong, given the circumstances. Yep. All serial killers live next door to someone, and Dennis Rader was no different. Better known under the pseudonym BTK, Bind, Torture, Kill. Rader was an expert at the double life, devoted dad by day, savage killer at night. He managed to get away with murder for three entire decades. He built his children a treehouse that he later stashed Polaroids of his victims in. He calmed his daughter's fears when she told him she was afraid of the serial killer on the loose. The only thing I can figure out, the killer later said, is that I have compartmentalized somewhere in my body. I can live a normal life and quickly switch from one gear to the next. I guess that's why I got away with it. Would you be fooled by Raider's act? Find out on the next episode of The Jury Room. On that note, this week's podcast plug is the Oracle Network's podcast of the month, which is Ooh. The Jury Room Podcast. Hey! <laughs> nice segue. <laughs> Fittingly enough. <laughs> 
the Jury Room podcast is run by our friend Kevin, who Hello. you may have heard previously on an episode of Can You Crack the Cramp Word? Mm-hmm. And he takes deep dives into cases about serial killers. He covers missing persons cases. You should do this one. Yeah, he should. Unsolved mysteries. He interviews detectives and kind of everything in between. It's a really interesting podcast. I think his deep dive on Casey Anthony, who is a garbage human, was like a month long thing where he just like went real deep into it. So he does a fantastic job. We'll have a link to his show in the show notes. Go check him out. Awesome. And this week's question comes from our friend Tom, Mm -hmm. who before we kind of dive into the question, he had heart surgery this week. <gasps> Did it go well? It's gone well. He's oh, still good. recovering in the hospital, but okay. I wanted to send him our well wishes Yeah. in the hopes that he makes a speedy recovery. Absolutely. I'm so glad you're okay. Yeah, because he's an important member of the true crime community on Twitter and a huge supporter of that community. And we love him and want to make sure that he's back on his feet and feeling much better very soon. Awesome. Well, congratulations. I'm glad it went well. I wish you all the best. Yes. So his question is, you can only eat one thing forever. What is it? And what's on that cheeseburger? (laughs) Ooh. So I've got a confession and I, well, no, I'm not going to say it because people would stop stop listening to the podcast because I'm not a big burger eater. Not the biggest burger eater. I mean, yeah, that's fine. I don't think anybody's going to come after you with pitchforks and be um, like, why don't you like cheeseburgers? You'd be really surprised. I feel like dad is on that list. (laughs) (laughs) Dad, stop judging. Why do you hate burgers? One thing I could eat forever. Forever and ever and ever. And it's the only thing you can eat forever. Honestly, peanut butter. Gross. There's so many ways you can consume it. That's true. You know, like you can put it in curry. You can put it in... You can make some sort of like nut-based like squash soup kind of a thing. You can put it in sandwiches. You You can put it in burgers. You can put it in burgers. Like, absolutely. I know that you've had it and you liked it. It was really good. I would would say like peanut butter because you can do a lot with peanut butter and hopefully not get too annoyed. (laughs) Yeah. What about you? I am going to say for a similar reason, I'm going to say salad. Because you can make a variety of different types of salad. You can put a variety of toppings on it. Mm -hmm. And speaking of salad, I actually made myself a salad yesterday that was really, really good. I had fried up some, is it pronounced tempeh? Tempeh. Which I had not had before and is really good. Wheat-based protein. So I had some of that with some seedless green grapes and spinach. And then I had a lemon poppy seed dressing and it was delightful. Nice. We actually had a maple bourbon bacon chopped salad, which was really good. It had like these honey almond things and a maple vinaigrette. It was really good. Yeah. That sounds awesome. Yeah. Good thing I'm eating lunch after this because I'm getting hungry. (laughs) (laughs) So what's something good you'd like to share this week? We're moved in. We're moved Mm -hmm. into the apartment. I have yet to get my podcast closet set up, so I'm really hot and dying and like uncomfy right now, but it's okay because it's only about an hour of my life (laughs) and I'll survive. But we've been settling. Willie is doing a lot better. He was, he had a hard time because essentially I pulled him out of paradise, which is my parents' house with a fenced in backyard and unlimited treats from Papa. But 
yeah, we're all acclimating very well and it's been good. It's been nice to, it's kind of fun to create a home, even though you don't have a lot of money to do so. (laughs) Yeah. What about you? What's one good thing? So you may have seen it on social, but a couple of weeks ago I bought a snake, which I never in a million years thought I would ever own a snake. Mm-hmm. And his name is Charlie and he's a, a champagne echina ball python. Okay. He's very cute. And it's just kind of fun sitting in my office working and glancing over and seeing him just like crawling all over the place. Hanging out. Hanging out or like curling up in a little ball. And he does this thing where he'll try to like stretch himself straight up to like touch the screen top of the enclosure. Mm -hmm. And it's just really funny when he does that and then inevitably kind of like falls over like a tree. (laughs) So it's just kind of funny. (laughs) And then he'll be like, I meant to do that. And he'll like slither away in like his cave and Mm -hmm. hide in shame. It's kind of funny. Nice. On that note, you can find us online at yieldcrimepodcast.com. We're also mm-hmm. on Twitter at yieldcrimepod, on Instagram at yieldcrimepodcast. We're on YouTube. We have a P.O. box if you'd like to send us something. Yeah. You can reach us at yieldcrimepodcast, P.O. box 341, Wyoming, Minnesota, 55092. You can email us story suggestions like Janet did at yieldcrimepodcast at gmail.com. Can I, can I put in a request? Sure. So for people who have children... Or, yeah, have children. I'm looking for, like, (laughs) affordable comfy chairs to put in this tiny closet to sit on. So, like, beanbags or memory foam chairs? Are there anybody that, does anybody, like, have a favorite that they can share with? And, like, any sort of battery-powered nightlight things that I can put in here so I can stop using my cell phone flashlight? (laughs) 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 Or, like, battery-powered fairy lights. I don't have a plug-in in this closet, but. Yeah, if anybody has suggestions on like cutifying my podcast closet, please email me. That'd be awesome. Yeah. If you'd like to support the show but can't do so financially, you can do so with a five star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, Good Pods. This week's review comes from Apple Podcasts and it's from our friend over at Roosterbat. And this is from your birthday last year. Really? It says, Happy birthday. <laughs> Thank you. You both are amazing and wonderful storytellers, but only one of you has a birthday today. It's true. By the way, my favorite color is one of them for sure. What? (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. So I can't remember what we said for that, but thank you. Yep. If you would like to support us financially, you can do so on Buy Me a Coffee, where you can leave a one-time donation. If you'd like to support us on Patreon, you can do so for as little as a dollar a month, which will get you early ad-free access to all of our episodes. You can also donate at the $5, $10, and $15 tiers to get more benefits. Mm -hmm. You can also purchase merch on on our Public store. We still have all of our August birthday designs up, although I may discontinue those in December when we put up more holiday-themed merch. Okay. And on that note, as always, I'm Lindsay. And I'm Madison. And we'll see you next time with another tale as old as crime.